Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 28. Today, you'll hear my interview with Ernie Leffler, president and CEO of the Fredericksburg Convention and Visitors Bureau. So many people start exploring Texas wine with a visit to Fredericksburg, and I'm excited to get Ernie's thoughts on the wine scene there. I'm also sharing the latest news about the Texas wine industry. There's another winery for sale. And be sure to stick around to the end of the show to hear more about Pickpool Blanc, a favorite Texas white wine that's getting national attention. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Harvest is going strong in the hill country and starting to kick off in the high plains, too. The weather in the hill country hasn't exactly been cooperating. One vineyard manager posted a photo of the huge storm clouds over the vineyard with the caption, Go home, August. You're drunk. Lewis Wines posted a video of a huge rainstorm and noted that they've had their expected average annual rainfall in the months of May through October. They stated that a tough vintage is getting tougher. There's definitely great quality fruit coming in, though. And still a lot on the vine, too. Chris Brendrett of William Chris posted an Instagram video from Andy Timmons' 16-year-old Tempranillo Vineyard. It's just going through verasion and will be harvested in October. Andy said that the block has experienced a little bit of hail damage, but that it was okay. Chris says he's having flashbacks of 2017. That was a great vintage for Texas wine. Chris even included the hashtag, hell yeah. A story on KTBX News and Brian highlights Brazos Valley Winery's struggle with this harvest season because of heavy rain. Justin Shiner from Texas A&M is quoted and says, When we have rain around harvest, it presents some major challenges. Challenges with the grapes splitting open and rotting quickly. After that, we have a problem with disease. Grape growers must either harvest their grapes sooner than they may wish, leaving some grapes not yet fully ripened, Or if grapes are left in heavy rain, they may split, rot, or become too diluted. John Rivenberg has a cool new piece of technology out at Kerrville Hills Winery. It's a mobile flash detente unit. According to the press release, flash detente roughly translates into immediate relaxation. And it's a process that works quickly by heating the grapes to near boiling, and then it immediately cools them. The process obliterates the cell wall, releasing numerous phenolic compounds, which increases the sugar content, enhances the color, and gives the wine a richer aroma. John Rivenberg says flash detente is the ultimate extraction tool, and he should know he helped bring a flash detente machine to Texas earlier in his career when he was at Bending Branch. The Kerrville Hills flash detente machine is available for winery incubator members And it's another tool in the arsenal of -of state-of-the-art equipment there. This machine is 40 feet long and 12 feet tall, and it's built on a trailer. Therefore, it's mobile and can be taken to other wineries to process grapes as well. It's pretty cool. Are you in the market for a winery and 80 acres of land? Well, Red Wing Dove Winery and Vineyard is for sale. It's located in Hamilton County. The property includes a production facility and tasting room, an eight-acre vineyard with room for expansion, a custom-built home, and more. The business is being offered turnkey with everything you need to continue producing and selling award-winning wines. Red Wing Dove Winery makes 500 cases of estate wines annually. 
According to Texas Wine Lover website, the winery is owned by Susan and Ellis Van Diver, former engineers who opened the winery in 2013. It's part of the Way Out Winery's wine trail. The price is $2.5 million. This month's Austin Monthly Magazine has a cover story called Texas Wine Trails, Best Places to Sip, Sleep, and Dine. Jessica Dufuy and Chris Hughes authored a collection of articles that make up a section of the magazine called A Field Guide to Texas Wine. You can expect advice on everything from how to read a Texas wine label to where to dine after a day of wine tours. There's also an article on the 10 best new wineries in the Hill Country, and by new they mean within the last five years. I'll link to all the online articles in the show notes, but if you see a physical copy of Austin Monthly, Pick it up off the newsstands. If this edition is super popular, maybe we'll keep getting great coverage of the Texas wine industry. HEB will be celebrating TexFest by offering 10% off all Texas wines August the 11th through 24th. HEB had to interrupt TexFest two years in a row due to COVID. Along with the sale, some wine stewards will be featured specially selected Texas wines in their wooden box collections. All of the wines showcased in boxes will be 100% Texas juice, and some of the wines featured will be from wineries like Ready Vineyards, Newsome Family, and William Chris, along with many others. Selections will vary by store, and be sure to let the HEB wine stewards know how much you love their Texas selections, or suggest other Texas wines that they might want to bring in another time. Be sure to shop TexFest, August 11th through 24th. If you're like me and love seeing photos inside celebrities' houses, don't miss the feature article in the San Antonio Express News. It's a photo tour of Regan and Carrie Metter's home that's located on the Southhold Farm and Cellar site in Fredericksburg. The home has million-dollar views and a kind of a modern Scandinavian vibe that's also apparent in the Southhold tasting room and in the kitchen next door. I just love their style. There's a link to that article and to all the news I've mentioned on This is TexasWine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. Please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. I now have three. Stars are great, too, but your actual comments are even better. And while you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget to follow my social media channels at Texas Wine Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you've already done all that, maybe send me your comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes. My email is texaswinepod at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail at 802-585-1286. My guest on this episode is Ernie Leffler, President and CEO of the Fredericksburg Convention and Visitors Bureau. Ernie has held that position for over 20 years, so he's certainly seen a lot of change in the number of tourists that visit Fredericksburg to enjoy Texas wine. I thought it would be so interesting to hear Ernie talk about who visits Fredericksburg, what types of attractions they're visiting, and how the city promotes the Texas wine scene. Here's my interview with Ernie. Okay, Ernie, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm thrilled to have you on because I know a lot of my listeners are interested in wine tourism. And of course, you can't talk about Texas wine tourism without talking about Fredericksburg. You've been in your position at the Convention and Visitor Bureau for 23 years, I understand. So you've seen a lot of change in that time. Can you tell me about what the wine scene was like when you arrived in Fredericksburg and a little bit about what it's like now? Sure. Glad to be here. Glad to chat with you today. Um, 
1998 is when I came to Fredericksburg to take over as the, uh, at that time, CVB director, Convention and Visitor Bureau director. And um, yeah, it was a pretty different <laughs> wine scene in those days. Fredericksburg was already a well-established tourism destination without question in those days. Um, you know, we, we sometimes joke that uh, Native Americans started visiting Enchanted Rock something like 10,000 years ago. So check those off as our first visitors to the area. But uh, obviously, the, the tourism industry has developed considerably since then. But yeah, in 1998, uh, there were four wineries here, Grape Creek, Becker, uh, Bell Mountain, which was the first winery actually in this area of Texas, and then Fredericksburg Wineries. So that was the inventory of wineries in 1998. And uh, certainly, you know, we were promoting wineries back in those days. Um, but I think, you know, one of the, the big, you know, just kind of subtle differences at the Visitor Information Center is that... In those days, people would come to Fredericksburg for history and, you know, outdoor recreation, a lot of other different reasons, which is still true today. And we would have to tell them, oh, by the way, would you like to visit a winery? Well, today in the visitor center, people walk in the front door going, we're here to visit wineries. Sure. And so that's just a really kind of little, you know, subtle change that we have seen in those years. Um, in 98, there was one wine tour company that operated here. We had 15 motels and approximately 80 B&Bs, uh, what they were called in those days, um, in the area, in Gillespie County, which we do promote Fredericksburg and Gillespie County. So some of my you know, information is based on Gillespie County. So in 2021, um, we do have 50 wineries in Gillespie County now. So from four to 50 in those years, um, and uh 18 wine tour companies that now operate in Fredericksburg and Gillespie County or out of Fredericksburg and Gillespie County. We have a lot more wine companies, tour companies that come in from the metropolitan areas and other parts of the Hill Country, but 18 that are actually based here. Um, 22 hotels and motels. And then somewhat amazingly, we now have approximately 1,500 B&Bs, short-term rentals, guest houses. So from 80... <laughs> To 1,500, which is just, you know, I don't even know what percentage of growth that is, but a it's lot. Incredible. Incredible. Do I understand correctly that that Stonewall is within Gillespie County, but that the county line must be somewhere between Stonewall and High? Is that right? That is correct. Um, yeah. So we promote primarily, in a, you know, in a very structured way, everything within Gillespie County. So Stonewall, High, uh, Harper, DOS, uh, those kinds of areas are all within our promotion area. But, um, but you know, having said that, uh, we are certainly very cognizant of the fact that uh, visitors that come to Fredericksburg and Gillespie County and to the Hill Country for the wine experience do not uh, know political boundaries or whatever. And so, you know, when people come to our visitor center, we freely talk about, you know, what's going on in High and what's going on in Johnson City. And, uh, you know, everything between Johnson City and Fredericksburg along, you know, what has become known as Wine Road 290 is certainly within our talking points if people have questions. And, and our visitor center itself, we, um, we actually have brochures on most cities and towns in Texas. So we're very much try to uh, assist visitors wherever they're going if they're headed, you know, from Fredericksburg to Lubbock for the wine scene there or whatever, we have brochures and kind of help them, 
you know, figure out their route along the way. So, um, you know, we, we definitely focus on what's in Gillespie County, but, uh, we, um, you know, know that a lot of other destinations within Texas now are certainly part of the, the wine, uh, industry in Texas, including obviously all the grapes growing on the high plains of Texas. Sure. Do you attribute that tremendous growth in the wine scene and people's interest in coming to visit wineries to messaging that you've put forth? I'm sure it's a combination of factors, but what do you think have been some of your more effective um, promotional outreach activities or campaigns that have helped bring people that are interested in wine to Fredericksburg? Yeah, it's definitely a combination of a number of things. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I actually have a <laughs> a moment in time when, in my mind anyway, as the president's uh, CEO of the Fredericksburg Convention and Visitors Bureau, I said, you know, we have an opportunity in front of us that we're probably not at that point in time taking um, full advantage of. And I'll just read a quote that really put me into this mode of promotion and marketing. So in uh, June of 2005, Wine Spectator said the following, uh, quote, follow the lead of the folks in Austin and Dallas and head to Fredericksburg, one of the Lone Star State's most charming towns and the Hill Country's unofficial capital of food and wine, end quote. And I read that and I said, you know, we need to start seriously taking that into effect in terms of our marketing and positioning and whatever. So, um, you know, literally at that point in 2005 or shortly thereafter, you know, we began to really incorporate the food and wine messaging much more heavily into our overall marketing. Um, You know, and if you go to our website now, you'll see wine and food is integrated throughout the website, on the calendar of events, on the list of things to do, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, it, it, it kind of was that moment in time when things were starting to happen naturally. Uh, and, you know, part of it is geography. If you look at the, the map of Texas uh, and you look at where Fredericksburg is located, we're pretty much literally geographically in the center of the Texas Hill Country. And, you know, 60% of our visitors come from the four major metropolitan areas of Texas. So easy, or at least in Texas, an easy drive for 29 million Texans. Uh, You know, El Paso, a little bit far, Amarillo, a little bit far. But uh, if you look at the map, you know, that available market is what really helped you know, kind of put Fredericksburg into that whole tourism, wine tourism, tourism in general too, but wine tourism because there there are so many people in that are within driving distance of the wineries, the tasting rooms, etc. That's great. All potential Texas wine drinkers. Exactly, exactly, and and you know that is something that we've been involved with uh, Texas wine and grape growers with recently. Um, you know, they've done a series of uh, videos to help promote drinking Texas wine yes. amongst Texans. And so, yep. um, you know, if you look at that market, the, you know, I think the last count is like 29 million Texans and more coming literally every day. Um, you know, part of the goal is just to make sure that all the Texans know about, you know, wine in Texas. And I think that has really started to happen because there's so many wineries across the state now, literally probably anywhere you live in the state, you have a winery that's relatively close to where you're living. And that really helps people start, um, you know, buying into Texas wine. And of course, Texans are uh, 
famous for being loyal to Texans, Texas and all things Texan. So uh, if we can, you know, build a knowledge level of what's going on in the Texas wine and the improvements that are happening in the Texas wine industry, um, I think, you know, the market is there without question. So true. I encouraged people in one of my early podcasts to find out which three wineries are closest to where they live. Because there is so much great stuff going on in the Hill Country, but frankly, there's great stuff going on throughout the state. That is absolutely right. Uh, whether it's in metropolitan areas or out in rural East Texas or wherever, um, I think, you know, um, I haven't looked at a map recently, but I know there are wineries sprinkled literally across the whole state of Texas at this point. Sure. So COVID, I imagine, changed a lot of things for Fredericksburg, and I'd like to hear you talk about that. Uh, I know a lot of seems like a lot more people were taking road trips. And if you already have 29 million people in road trip distance, that has the potential to really be high numbers for Fredericksburg. But I know it was a tough time for businesses and especially for restaurants and wineries as well. Yes, it, it certainly was a challenge, to, <laughs> to say the least. Um, you know, the months of um, April and May, uh, like most places, uh, we actually closed our visitor center, which is the first time that's happened, you know, as long as I know, remember, at least for 23 years, that was the first time we ever closed for any significant amount of time. Um, we're open seven days a week normally. But um, <clears throat> so that was definitely, uh, you know, an issue. And of course, the restaurants had to move into uh, survival mode. I will say, and you know, again, it's partially geography. It's partially the product that Fredericksburg has to offer as a tourism destination. And remember those 1500 short term rentals that I mentioned earlier. When people started saying, okay, we can start venturing out. We're going to drive. We're not going to fly. Maybe, um, you know, starting Memorial Day weekend of, um, 2020, we started to see the return of some visitors and, um, you know, we were very blessed in Fredericksburg and Gillespie County that uh, the tourism industry came back relatively quickly for us. Um, our tourism business is based a lot on drive market anyway. Um, you know, we have worked over the years to increase our international visits, visitors, our conferences, uh, that type of thing, which, of course, all of that went away totally, uh, the international visitors, etc. But because we were so strongly based in drive market anyway, you know, people started saying, well, let's go to Fredericksburg. And what happened in that period of time is that, um, you know, our hotels didn't out bounce back as quickly, but the short-term rentals started breaking records, literally, uh, during that COVID period and still continuing today, actually. Uh, so, um, you know, and, and the restaurants started figuring out how to work and, you know, how to do takeout. And uh, the retailers, of course, tried to follow all the, you know, guidelines that were uh, issued by either local government, state government, national, whatever. But um, but we were able to bounce back pretty quickly, and we are all very thankful for that. And, uh, you know, I, I think we'll, um, as far as uh, occupancy tax collections, um, we actually will break, are going to break records, which wow. is kind of <laughs> somewhat amazing because you still hear, you know, many particularly large metropolitan areas that are still very much... Uh, suffering in terms of tourism, particularly if they were based on large conventions and a lot of international travel, you know, they're still in a very bad shape. But, uh, but so, yes, we were lucky and we really tried to work to make sure that that happened in a safe manner, I should add. 
I know August isn't traditionally one of the top months for tourism in anywhere in Texas, probably. But but uh, I noticed that on your website, you're promoting the, the grape harvest, which is kind of a neat deal. And so perhaps people are coming to do wine-specific activities and to see an actual grape harvest. Is that a new promotion for you? It is a couple of years old, but new in the big picture of things. Yeah, one of the things that we saw happening and everybody in tourism saw happening over the years is that schools started earlier and earlier, public schools. Uh, you know, there was the old days when it started, schools started after Labor Day. Well, you know, now mid-August, just about all public schools are back in session. And so um, the tourism industry in Texas, you know, lobbied for a number of years to try to, try to make sure that school didn't start too early uh, based on the fact that kids need a break and uh, a lot of kids work to build up their funds for going to college, et cetera. But what we decided was, and we kind of looked around at some of the other destinations, wine destinations in the United States, and we said, um, well, we're probably missing the boat here a little bit. Um, you know, wine harvest is obviously much earlier in Texas than it is in, say, California, or at least parts of California and uh, the Northwest. So our thought was, okay, we know that families are not going to be traveling that much, at least in the second half of August. So let's go after the wine and culinary uh, travelers who a lot of times do have the ability to travel when they want to. And so that's when we really started uh, pushing the idea of come to the Hill Country, come to Texas uh, for the wine harvest. And the wineries, you know, started doing the grape stomps and uh, vintner dinners and things like that to give people something to do during the harvest season. That's cool. Do you have any way of knowing through surveys and so forth how many of the visitors to the area visit a winery? Um, yes, we do. We, uh, <clears throat> we've been doing research, visitor research, since about the year 2000. And um, because we kind of knew that the wine industry was growing, and obviously, as I mentioned, you know, got into the, the mode of really trying to help that growth along, we, uh, <clears throat> I pulled some numbers just because I'm, uh, you know, it's really interesting. So one of the questions in our visitor research is, what are the top reasons that you visit Fredericksburg? And, uh, you know, one of the multiple choices, and it's multiple choice, you know, was visiting wineries. So in 2000, 11% of the visitors that took our survey, and we do pretty robust surveys, like the last survey we did, we uh, had like 4,000 responses. So it's pretty, pretty robust. 11% in 2000. 2014, that number had jumped to 19%. Again, wineries being one of the top reasons to visit. 2008, 24%. 2013, 32%. 2019, the last research we did, 42%. Wow. That is pretty amazing information right there. It sure <laughs> that is. We went from 11% saying, yeah, wineries is one of the reasons we visit to almost reaching 50% at this point as a top reason to visit. So, um, you know, we, we feel like our promotion and the work and certainly just, you know, the increasing numbers of people that are investing in wineries in the region, in the hill country, and as, you know, the, the um, increasingly better quality wine, you know, plays into all of that to make more visitors come and, and make that a reason for visiting. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we, um, that we also know because we've, you know, studied some research about wine and culinary visitors is that, um, 
those type of visitors tend to <clears throat> have other things they want to do when they're in the area. And uh, so we, um, you know, have great history. Uh, the National Museum of the Pacific War is here, which recently was designated as a Smithsonian affiliate, which is pretty incredible in a small town in the Texas Hill Country. And um, if people that are listening haven't been there, I would highly recommend it. It's it's a, a major museum. But we've got that rich history, that German heritage, outdoor recreation, uh, abundant shopping, unique accommodations, uh, you know, a growing culinary scene, all those things wine and culinary travelers like in addition to going to the wineries. So, so when we, you know, talk to potential, uh, wine and culinary travelers, we also bring in all those other, um, you know, qualities of the destination are parts of the product because we know that they're interested in that as well. It makes a nice rounded package for a visitor if they're coming Absolutely. from within Texas or, you know, beyond Texas or even internationally. We do market quite heavily internationally as well in Germany, in the UK, uh, Mexico and Canada are, and, and Australia. Surprisingly enough, a lot of Australians come to Texas. Really? Um, Interesting. A long, long trip, but... <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But, uh, but anyway, so that, you know, is all plays into that, um, you know. The other thing that is kind of interesting, um, just in terms of winery visitors, one of the things we noted also when we were doing the research um, is that winery visitors uh, tend to be younger. And, um, you know, for Fredericksburg, we basically... Um, started as a major destination for the World War II generation because of the, the National Museum of the Pacific War. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of that, those visitors are gone. Um, you know, they've passed away, are no longer able to travel. And so, you know, when we were looking at our, our destination from a management point of view, we felt like we needed to really introduce, as it were, Fredericksburg to a younger generation. And when we did our research on winery and culinary visitors, we go, okay, <laughs> this is another window of opportunity that the winery industry can bring to us to introduce younger visitors. And when we did our last research in um, 2019, um, and this is visitors under the age of 35, our overall visitors, it was 20%. But when we talk to just winery visitors. We did research in 2018, I believe, on just winery visitors. 33% were under 35. So 20% from our normal visitors, winery visitors per se, 33%. So again, the wine industry has allowed us to introduce Fredericksburg to a younger demographics. And typically we find that once they get introduced to Fredericksburg in the Hill Country, they like it and they return. So uh, that's been a real positive benefit of the wine industry beyond all the other things that we've talked about. I have seen a statistic thrown around that I don't know if it's true. And I tried to verify and I couldn't find any specific um, verification of this, which is that Fredericksburg is number two in wine tourism behind the Napa Valley. I bet you've heard that. Is that a true statistic? Do you know where it came from? You know, I... I do not know if it's true. I think it generated was generated originally from an orbit study that had been done in terms of bookings that they saw going on uh, related to wine tourism, but I'm not sure 100%. Um, 
it is not a number that we as a convention and visitor bureau used. Uh, you know, we like to stick to the facts sure. <laughs> as best as we can. Um, and, uh, but yes, it's been tossed around quite a bit. And, um, you know, once it's out there, people start <laughs> sharing it and whether or not it's true, whether yes. or not it's true is not, um, we certainly, you know, see a huge number of visitors, um, uh, for a small town particularly. And, uh, <clears throat> but you know, whether that is uh, a true number, I, I really can't verify. Another thing that I, that I was able to track down, I think the origin story behind is Fredericksburg, the new Napa. And I did find that in 2014, the Huffington Post published an article called, This Texas Wine Region Has Been Dubbed the New Napa. And then it says, Fredericksburg, a tiny town of 12,000 in the Texas Hill Country, is the epicenter of what is slowly becoming known as the New Napa in Texas, unbeknownst to the rest of the world. And the article goes on to give reasons why the author thought that Fredericksburg is the New Napa. And she, she based her claim on what she called perfect growing conditions for wine grapes, which I could perhaps argue that it's perfect, but um, <laughs> she talked about just having a lot of visitors, the growth in the wine industry, and award-winning wines. So I, I don't have too much argument with, with the rest of those items, but I think that that new Napa term really caught on, especially I saw around 2015, 2016, just a ton of references to Napa. So how, what do you think the discussion is around Fredericksburg and Napa? You know, I, I agree. It was it was created by the media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we personally, uh, at the Convention of Visitors Bureau in Fredericksburg, we personally prefer the term Texas wine country. You know, that's the term that we use when we kind of position uh, Fredericksburg in the hill country is Texas wine country. And, uh, and we do use, you know, the terminology of being the epicenter of the hill country in terms of... Uh, concentration of wineries. Obviously, there's a lot of other wineries around the Hill Country as well. You know, as you well know, the wine industry in Texas, the current wine industry, the modern wine industry, is very young compared to California in terms of just number of wineries and volume, etc. I don't know what the current count of Napa Valley just itself is, but it's probably four or 500 wineries compared to 50 <laughs> in Gillespie County. Yep. So there, there's a significant difference there mm-hmm. um, in terms of just volume and the number of wineries. Um, you know, we do hear people and people more knowledgeable than I, for sure, in terms of, uh, you know, wine destinations and their development that, you know, have talked about Fredericksburg and the Hill Country maybe being... 20 years behind some of the more well-established uh, wine destinations in California, uh, but headed in that, you know, that trajectory that the growth is coming in. And we do, you know, at this point, do not see any slowdown um, in terms of development of new wineries and, uh, uh, you know, interest, uh, and apparently growing interest from wineries in California as well in the Hill Country. Um and Texas probably in general, but um, we don't, again, um, it's out there as a convention and visitors bureau. It's not a term that we use. Um, we really, you know, prefer to position ourselves as Texas wine country. And um, I'm sure as most of your listeners realize, you know, grapes grown in Texas and wine produced in Texas is not going to be like wine in California. So there's no real reason, <laughs> in my opinion, anyway, to compare ourselves to California we're we're creating a new wine country and uh which will have 
different different grapes and different uh, growing seasons. But we are seeing, um, and I'm happy about it, we're seeing increasing acreage of wineries planted in or the area around Fredericksburg now with some uh, new um, winery people coming in and uh, planting uh, significant uh vineyards at this point. So it's a compliment of sorts, but uh, but again, we really prefer using our own uh, Texas wine country and language as opposed to Napa of Texas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think we need to try to copy what anyone else is doing because we're, we're doing some great things here on our own. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this is obviously a great time to visit Fredericksburg because of the significance of this year. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on for Fredericksburg's 175th anniversary? I would love to. Um, yeah, so Fredericksburg was founded on May 8th of 1846. Uh, 120 German settlers came to Fredericksburg. They, um, it was a planned immigration, which is somewhat unusual, uh, there was a group of noblemen in Germany called the Adelsverein, and they put together these packages, which people bought, uh, which promised them transportation from Germany to Texas, uh, promised transportation from the Gulf of Mexico to the Hill Country, to the Fredericksburg, and then also some land when they arrived. So um, those, that group arrived, like I said, on May 8th, uh, 1846, so 175 years ago. And uh, they, um, you know, some of what was promised did not, <laughs> did not materialize, unfortunately. So uh, the whole, um, you know, trip from Indianola, which was where a lot of the Germans in, uh, landed, which is no longer there. Um, it was unfortunately blown away by a hurricane, <laughs> but uh, it was the port of entry for a lot of the German settlers. And uh, uh, the United States had gone to war with Mexico at that point in time. And so a lot of the Teamsters, the people that were supposed to transport the uh, Germans from the Gulf to the Hill Country were, um, you know, uh, hired by the U.S. government to help with the war effort, so to speak. And so some had to walk. Many died on the way. It's a you know kind of tragic story in terms of what happened. But uh, they did make it. They founded Fredericksburg. Um, in 1847, John O. Moisebach, who was the leader of the Fredericksburg community, and the men of the community went and they negotiated a peace treaty with the Pentateca Comanche Indians. The Germans had realized that if they were going to survive in the hill country, that they had to come to terms with the Native Americans. Uh, the Germans thought they bought the land. Of course, the Native Americans thought it was their land, which is, uh, you know, the classic story, unfortunately, of the movement West. But uh, the beauty of it is that most historians believe that the peace treaty between the German settlers and the Comanches here is one of the few, if not only, unbroken peace treaties in the United States between settlers and Native Americans. So. You know, as a Fredericksburg community, we're very proud of that particular aspect. But the uh, anniversary celebration is running from May 2021 to May 2022. Um, we do have monthly themes each month where we try to highlight um, lasting attributes of Fredericksburg that have made it the great town, we believe, to live, work, and visit, uh, such as traditions and craftsmanship, family heritage, stewardship of the land, uh, arts and music. So each month has a team, theme, excuse me, for 13 months and, um, different events are, you know, planned as part of that. Um, one of the events that's going on right now that is, uh, really a great look back in history is an art exhibit that the 
um, art committee put together. It's called the Art of Fredericksburg, 175 Years. And um, it's in the Temporary Gallery at the National Museum of the Pacific War. And it runs through September 19th of this year, of 2021. But what is really amazing about that is there are pieces of art. Uh, there were two German classically trained artists that came to Fredericksburg as early immigrants, and then also a painter who was stationed at Fort Martin Scott, which was the fort that was established here, Seth Eastman. So we have paintings and sketches from 1849 and the 1850s of what those artists saw in Fredericksburg in those early days, which is just an amazing visual journey to see what he, uh, Seth Eastman, who did some of the sketches, called them Dutch homes, quote unquote. But, uh, you know, what the homes looked like, those early homes, they were very, you know, rudimentary kind of homes are built uh, in the wilderness of Texas, basically. <laughs> and then they have selected artists that have painted in Fredericksburg all the way through current practicing uh, artists today. Uh, and it's, um, I think, about 60 different pieces of artwork that really trace you know, the artistic development in Fredericksburg, which has become and it still is a quite a uh, enclave of, of practicing working artists. And so um, I would highly recommend that to your listeners, anybody that can make it over to Fredericksburg uh, between now and September 19th to take a look at that exhibit. Uh, the museum is closed on Tuesdays right now, but uh, six days a week, it's open and free to the public. But uh, so those are some of the things 175th.org is there's lots of information about the 175th anniversary. 175th.org is the website. Do we know anything about how those early settlers got started growing grapevines or making wine? Yes, we do. <laughs> Tell me. Uh, my background is actually German too. So, um, you know, when the Germans arrived in Fredericksburg and other parts of central Texas, they did find wild Mustang grapes growing abundantly. And uh, so, you know, there are still German families in Fredericksburg and other German communities in, in the Texas central area of Texas that still make wine from wild Mustang grapes that they harvest uh, each year. And so um, so that was uh, really how the wine industry started. And there's some really great old photographs of, you know, a bunch of men gathered around with a table and they have bottles of wine, uh, uh, you know, out that they're tasting and whatever, and bottles of beer. I will add that they started making beer pretty much immediately as well with their, you know, roots in Germany. But uh, yeah, and then, you know, there was some early uh, Moisebach actually, who was uh, the leader of the colony as, after he retired as kind of the leader, he did uh, plant orchards and uh, did a lot of cultivation of plants and everything. So, um, you know, that, um, you know, and I, as far as when there was actually a, the first winery, I know there was, you know, there were wineries before Prohibition, but I don't really know a great deal of history about that. But um, one of the things that I found really fascinating is that um, uh, one of our former mayors here in Fredericksburg traveled uh, extensively in Germany, and somewhere she came up with a poster promoting immigration to Texas. And what I found completely interesting and prophetic of sorts is the poster promoted coming to Texas to the German market as coming to the land of, you know, abundant agriculture and grapes and honey and all that kind of thing. And there are literally illustrations of grapes on this poster 
from the mid-1840s in Germany. Wow. Portraying Texas as a place. And I'm thinking, okay, 175 years later, you know, here we have all these wineries that have sprouted and vineyards, et cetera. And I thought somebody was pretty, you know, forward thinking when they said Texas was going to be a land with vineyards and grapes and whatever. And of course, we know the history of, you know, the first uh, Europeans planting grapes around El Paso with the with the missionary work, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, yep. um, so there were grapes here, obviously, growing in different parts of Texas. But originally, the Germans used the, the grapes, the wild grapes they found growing to start their wine wine production, so to speak. Yeah. When you look at the future for Fredericksburg, the tremendous growth that we've had in the number of wineries and people growing grapevines for wine production, it's exciting. And and certainly there are also a few struggles that come with being kind of a wine destination. Um, how do you balance the desires and the needs of your residents versus tourists that come to Fredericksburg um, particularly when it comes to alcohol. Yeah, that is certainly a, a relevant topic today. <laughs> um, it's something that's been ongoing. Um, you know, an example of, of of that type of thing where we have tried to figure out what we need to be doing is out on 290. You know, traffic had become quite an issue out on 290 uh, between Fredericksburg and Stonewall. And as an example, we were able to work with the Texas Department of Transportation to have a center turn lane put in in a a, a good stretch of what was then kind of the most highly commercial part of 290. Um, You know, and I believe that Texas Department of Transportation has also approved extending that turn lane all the way into Fredericksburg and then to Stonewall on the other side. So that's an example of how, you know, as that commercial development has happened, a lot of it wineries, but other things as well, that, you know, traffic has increased and there were unfortunately um, accidents there. So uh, so that's an example. But, but one of the things, you know, that we have done in terms of what we call destination management, and that does relate to, you know, that topic that you brought up, is that um, we know that on Saturdays, particularly in downtown uh, Fredericksburg and at some of the larger wineries, we have kind of reached our a max of what we think is a comfortable visitation level, uh, both for local residents as well as for just the the visitors and their experience. And so uh, for probably about the last two to three years now, uh, we've been promoting travel to Fredericksburg midweek with the idea that, you know, if you're able to travel midweek, if you're retired or you have a job where you work from home, and of course more and more people are working from home at this point in time, um, you can travel to Fredericksburg midweek. Um, you know, you do need to plan ahead because there, are, you know, some of the restaurants are closed on certain days, whether it's Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. But the vast majority of the shops, the museums, just about everything is open um, midweek, so there is no real reason that everybody has to come on the weekend. And so uh, we run ads. Uh, specifically that say, you know, come to Fredericksburg, Gillespie County, the Hill Country uh, midweek. And, uh, you know, there won't be quite as much hecticness going on. If you go to a winery midweek, you're probably going to have uh, a more personal experience because it may just be you and the, you know, the person pouring or maybe even the winemaker is there to answer your questions or whatever. Whereas on Saturdays, you know, in the bigger wineries that there's, you know, so many people that it, it becomes more difficult. And we've had pretty good success. We see that uh, visitation is extending. So more people are coming on Thursday now. 
and more people are staying till Monday. You know, part of the logic behind that also is that even like for the restaurants, um, rather than them hiring, you know, having, let's say, just say five permanent or full-time wait staff, and then they have to hire 10 more on Saturday, you know, if we can spread the business out, hopefully more people will have full-time jobs, um, which is a benefit then to everybody in the community if there are more full-time jobs at restaurants and retail, et cetera, as opposed to only part-time jobs on Saturday or Friday, Saturday, whatever the case might be. Um, certainly, we talked about the short-term rentals. We have a lot of them. Uh, there are issues that are sometimes caused in the neighborhoods um, by short-term rentals uh, in terms of noise and uh, sometimes trash and parking. So the city council here in Fredericksburg is actually going through a process right now to determine how they might fine-tune the short-term ordinance that we have, short-term rental, excuse me, ordinance that we have. Um, you know, the, we have had an ordinance, ordinance for quite some years, uh, but now they're looking at it, you know, are there things they can fine-tune because everybody that's in the tourism industry and most owners of short-term rentals and, you know, wineries and other tourism-related businesses want visitors to have a great experience and they want locals to have a great experience. And so, you know, where do we fine-tune and where do we find that balance is where we're really working quite uh, diligently at this point is to try to figure out what's the balance. And uh, we at the Convention of Visitors Bureau are actually literally uh, in the process of planning a new campaign uh, that will be oriented both to visitors and local residents in terms of, you know, how to come to Fredericksburg, enjoy the reasons that you are coming and also protect those same reasons that mm -hmm. you enjoyed coming for. Be a responsible visitor. Exactly. Sustainable tourism, responsible visitor. We're, we're literally working with our, our marketing and ad agencies right now on um, launching a, an actual campaign. We've always had that messaging or tried to have that messaging, but now we feel like we really need to have a, you know, a dedicated campaign. Um, and that is happening all over the United States. You yeah, know, yeah, in Europe, important. everywhere, really. Um, and I think what happened was that COVID gave everybody a little bit of a chance to kind of take a breath, at least certainly during those two months when everything was literally closed down and kind of reevaluate, you know, and I always tell people it's kind of like, you know, what does Fredericksburg want to be when it grows up? <laughs> you know, I, we're, I, I kind of feel like we're maybe in sort of a little bit of an awkward teenage years, you know. Lots of growth, lots of things happening, mm -hmm. and we need to figure out what do we want to be when we become a mature destination from a tourism point, as well as a mature destination from a wine tourism point of view, and uh, you know, work to make that happen rather than just allow things to happen that maybe you know are not as good as they should be. Yeah, that makes sense because we certainly want to protect the experience for people to be visiting here for generations to come. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, and. And not only, um, and you know, another example would be, um, you know, because there's obviously different things to protect, uh, you know, the, the environment or the, you know, the geography is another thing. And then a good example of what's been put in place out in Enchanted Rock is another example of, you know, sustainable tourism being put into place. So, um, you know, at Enchanted Rock and many of the state parks now that are very busy, you have to do a day pass or you have to, you know, make a reservation or do a day pass before you ever come to visit. And um, so that has really helped um, 
reduced the crowds and reduced the long line of people trying to get into Enchanted Rock on a Saturday or during spring break or whatever. But that's another example of how through destination management, you know, we can make the experience better for everybody, really. Sure. Uh, and I think probably some of the wineries have had some experiences during COVID that have actually turned out to be for the best and that they're going to continue. Things like asking for reservations and limiting group size. And, you know, it is, it's tough for wineries to be, you know, the fourth stop on a bachelorette bus party, you know, it's, uh, it's tricky. So, so I think the wineries like to be able to give more personalized service to smaller groups that are there, um, to learn. And and the, the purpose of tasting is to taste some wine and then hopefully buy some. So that's, that's really the goal. Absolutely. And, and I totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, uh, COVID made us, or the experience of COVID in tourism world made us become more creative, um, and I think the wineries have done that as well. Um, certainly, um, you know, different winery owners are taking different approaches. Uh, but uh, I think there is certainly a, a, a good faith effort to, you know, maintain the quality of experience at, at the majority of the wineries. One of the things that we have people in the visitor center on a Saturday, you know, we do say you might want to try some of the smaller wineries because, you know, they may not have quite as much traffic as some of the larger ones, you know, go on a Tuesday or Wednesday to one of the larger ones, but then go on a weekend to one of the smaller ones that are a little bit more off the beaten path and, uh, you know, might have uh, a little bit more uh, time in terms of uh, working through a tasting and that type of thing. But sure. uh, so I think, you know, it, it's very true that we are, um, you know, experimenting with different uh, ideas and ways to to manage tourism. And, and again, like I said, you know, our goal is that, um, People that live in Fredericksburg and Gillespie County, you know, value it as a wonderful place to live, which I, I personally believe it is. And uh, and also for visitors to have the best experience that they can have when they come here. Um, and, you know, our, our general philosophy at, at the Fredericksburg Convention of Visitors Bureau is we don't necessarily want to be the biggest of anything per se, <laughs> but we want people to come to our destination to have the best travel experience in Texas that they can have. And uh, that's, you know, kind of our mission is to make sure that everybody does have a really great experience when they when they do come to our area of Texas. When folks are planning a trip to Fredericksburg, they can certainly go onto your website and see events that are happening. Uh, and then when they're there in the flesh, they can go to the visitor center, which also has a great, nice big parking lot, which I always encourage people to park there and then walk to Main Street because that can be a little bit easier to park at the visitor center, right? Um, but oh, yeah, how can definitely. people connect with all of your resources that you offer to visitors? Yeah, certainly, um, uh, you know, the website is number one. One of the things that we um, have done on our website is we have made the winery list searchable, for example. Uh, so if somebody has a pet with them, they can click that uh, icon and only the wineries that allow pets will come up. Uh, if they've got children with them, if they want to go to a winery that is actually growing grapes on the site, uh, we've got those sorted out. Um, if they want a tour of a winery, they can click that. So we've tried to make the uh, the website as visitor friendly as possible, and really, you know, just say, okay, here's a list of fifty wineries. Good luck. <laughs> you know, people can break it down mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, it, we've got also, you know, a list of the uh, what we call the urban wineries that are in the downtown area. Like you said, first stop should be the visitor center downtown because we do have maps 
we do are open seven days a week. Um, uh, we're closed on just four major holidays, but other than that, we're here with uh, friendly staff to answer questions and uh, give some direction. Uh, the parking lot is is a big benefit. We also have uh, uh, public restrooms, which are important as well. Uh, we have a 10-minute little DVD that people can watch in our theater that kind of gives an orientation to what all is in Fredericksburg. And uh, so we encourage people to see that and then go out and explore the downtown area and beyond. And then, of course, we have all the social media, Facebook and uh, Twitter and Instagram, et cetera, where uh, people can also, you know, correspond with us uh, through those media. But uh, website, definitely wherever you're at. And uh, when you come to Fredericksburg in person, uh, we'd certainly welcome anyone to stop by the Visitor Information Center. Say howdy. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, ask particular questions and we'll be happy to try to direct them to, um, you know, where they want to go. One of the one of the big questions we always get, and again, I talked about our German heritage in Fredericksburg in the Hill Country. One of the top questions is, where are the German restaurants? We want a good yes. German meal. So, and and then as I alluded to earlier, um, you know, we're here to taste wine. Where do we find the wineries and how do we sign up for a tour and, you know, those kinds of things. So uh, we try to be as helpful as we can. Can you tell people what your web address is? Yes, I can. So it is... VisitFredericksburgTX.com. VisitFredericksburgTX.com has got a wealth of information. Thanks so much for your time, Ernie. And listeners, if you're visiting Fredericksburg, don't forget to visit the Convention and Visitors Bureau website to get more information to help plan your trip. That web address is VisitFredericksburgTX.com. Next up, I'm handing out demerits and gold stars. This episode's gold star was submitted by a listener. He wanted to shout out Wildfire Restaurant, a steakhouse in Georgetown. Wildfire has over 40 Texas wines on their list. I took a look at the wine list, and it has a nice map of Texas on the front. It's marked with the vineyards and winery locations for the wines that are served there. Wildfire is pouring wine from 26 different wineries as far south as Hack in Santa Fe, as far north as Bluffdale as far east as Red 55 Winery in Lindale, which is even further east than Keepersall and Tyler. And there are, as you can imagine, plenty of vineyards and wineries out west that are represented. So if you're in or around Georgetown, make a reservation or just grab a seat at the bar and order some fine Texas wine. I have to guess that Wildfire has been inspired by the real OG in Texas wine list. And that, of course, is the Cabernet Grill in Fredericksburg. They've got the largest Texas wine list in the world. Cabernet Grill has gotten a ton of recognition and praise for their Texas wine list and for their amazing cuisine. And I'll attest to that. I ate there recently and it was completely delicious. I'm happy to be recognizing Cabernet Grill and Wildfire Restaurant for having such great Texas wine selections. All right, moving on to the demerit. So there was a demerit this week. But I reached out to the offending social media site that made a snarky comment about Texas wine, and they revised their post. So I'm going to let this one go for now. I think I've handled it. It's a long story. Folks, be sure to send me your gold stars and demerits to be considered for the podcast. Message me on social media or email texaswinepod at gmail.com.
It's been a while since I've done an educational segment on the podcast, but I was inspired to do this one on Pickpool Blanc after 750daily.com published a big article on Pickpool recently. Their article is called Complex Pickpool Has Arrived by Sophia McDonald. And because it quotes several different Texas winemakers, I wanted to talk about the article and also give my impressions of Texas Pickpool. First, to just review some of the basic facts, Pickpool Blanc is a white grape that originates in the Languedoc on the Mediterranean coast in the south of France. It's an ancient grape that's a great alternative to Pinot Grigio, Sauvignon Blanc, or Vino Verde. Synonyms for Pickpool Blanc are Pickpool de Pinay or just simply Pickpool. Most of the Pickpool that's grown in France is grown in a region in southern France called Pickpool de Pinay AOC. There's also Pickpool Gris or Pickpool Noir, by the way. But today we're talking about Pickpool Blanc. You'll also find lemony citrus notes in Pickpool, even green pear or green pineapple notes, and white blossom characters, too. The wine often has a saline quality. Traditionally, it pairs with oysters and other briny seafood. It's also a great choice for a charcuterie tray or for various cheeses. Remember that what helps a wine pair easily with food is its acidity, and Pickpool has plenty of that. It can be bottled as a single varietal wine or used in a blend. Pickpool in French means lip stinger, and that just shows you what kind of acidity we're talking about. Traditionally, Pickpool has been a wine to drink young, something that could be considered a porch pounder, and many wineries do make that style. But this article is pointing out that Pickpool can actually be taken a bit more seriously, and some wineries are giving Pickpool different winemaking treatments to make it more complex and also more ageable. The article states that in 2000, Tablas Creek became the first winery to plant the grape in the U.S. And since then, they have cultivated most of the Pickpool vines that are currently growing around the country. Jason Haas of Tablas Creek said they thought originally that they would use it in blends, but it's turned out to be even more compelling on its own than they thought. So they also make a single varietal Pickpool. Bob Young, the owner of Bending Branch in Comfort, a.k.a. Dr. Bob, is quoted in the article too. And he says, We've always picked a little later to get more fruit and aromatics. Because the acidity holds up so well compared to most white varieties, this is not a problem in our Texas vineyards. We barrel ferment and barrel age pick pool, so this adds another layer of body, complexity, and mouthfeel. We have pick pools from our estate vineyard that are still tasting good after 10 years in our wine library. He says that of the three whites that he grows, Roussan, Vermentino, and Pickpool, that Pickpool is the most popular. He goes on to say that Pickpool is one of the most versatile grape varieties, and because of its structure, it's frequently described as the white wine for red wine drinkers. Its high acidity lends itself not only to bright tank-fermented wines, but it can also handle the full-bodied creaminess of barrel fermentation. Dr. Bob does make most of his pick pools in the more traditional French way, fermented in oak and aged in mostly neutral French oak with batonnage or stirring twice a day. But he also makes a small amount in used bourbon barrels and uses that for mint juleps for the winery's annual Kentucky Derby party. The article also quotes Kim McPherson. And I've talked about Kim McPherson's views on pick pool on this podcast before. On one podcast interview, Kim McPherson says that he could leave cases of Pickpool outside of a liquor store and that no one would steal it. And in this article, Kim says 
despite growing awareness, that Pickpool remains a hand cell in most places. He says, Pickpool seems to be a variety that people know about on the East Coast, but in other places, sales are slower. So the McPherson Pickpool has a new label and possibly a vineyard source change as well. In the past, McPherson has used the traditional McPherson label, and they even spell Pickpool a little differently, P-I-Q-U-E-P-O-U-L. But on the more recent McPherson label, they spell it the way most others do, P-I-C-P-O-U-L. And the label is a bright kind of cartoon-like graphic of a woman near a swimming pool. McPherson used to make a Timmins Estate Pickpool, but this new one is just labeled Texas High Plains, so I'm not sure exactly where the grapes come from. If you want to taste through a few different Texas Pickpools, grab a few of the wines that I'm about to mention. And the first is this McPherson Pickpool. It's 12.8% alcohol. And taste that next to the Bending Branch Pickpool, which is 12.7% alcohol. Um, put those side by side. So one's going to be super bright, fresh, and crisp, and the other is a little bit more complex with some neutral oak and some yeast stirring. And then if you want to add to that, maybe try the Bending Branch Pickpool that's been aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. So that's really going to ramp up the aromas, the complexity, and yes, the alcohol. That one comes in at 14%. According to Texas Wine Lover website, there are at least 10 vineyards that grow Pickpool Blanc around the state. And the most recent USDA grape variety report states that there are 5.6 bearing acres in the state, up from 4.6 bearing acres in 2019. Still, it's not very much. There are also 11 non-bearing acres, which I believe means that the vines are too young to produce grapes for winemaking. The report tells us that four of the bearing acres are planted in the high plains, and the remaining 1.6 acres aren't identified by location, but at least a part of that is in the hill country. We just talked about that estate pick pool from Bending Branch, which is in comfort. And here are a few other pick pools that you may want to seek out. One Texas High Plains pick pool won double gold at the 2021 San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition. The 2019 Parasos Vineyard pick pool Blanc from Kubacek Vineyard, just south of Lubbock. Parasos is now selling the 2020 vintage. Abastris gets Pickpool from Reddy Vineyard in Brownfield. Winemaker Mike Nelson told me that he loves Pickpool for its acidity and sharpness. He likes to give it a little bit of hang time so that it expresses green apple and lemon preserves notes. He ferments it at a low temperature in a temperature-controlled stainless steel tank, and that also helps preserve the crispness. Mike also likes to use Pickpool in blends. Abastris has a new white blend that's coming out called Stello, and Pickpool makes up 15% of that wine. Stello also has 50% Roussan, 25% Claret Blanche, and 10% Marsan. It's a similar blend to the white Chateauneuf de Pop, although Marsan is not allowed in that blend. I had Stello as part of the Abastris tasting menu not long ago, and it's quite tasty. So Pickpool seems to be a grape that winemakers can also get a little crazy with. And here are some wines that definitely push the envelope. The Austin Winery has a Pickpool Pet Nat, and it is multi-vintage, so it includes grapes harvested in 2019 and 2020. And it's also Reposso, which is a winemaking method that involves re-fermenting wine with partially dried grape skins. In this case, they re-fermented the pick pool with the addition of Marsan and pick pool skins from 2020. 
It was, uh, the wine was aged on the lees and stainless for one year before it was re-fermented. And now it's available as a pet net. Southhold is also doing something interesting with Pickpool. They're doing a fortified skin fermented Pickpool. It's a skin contact wine, otherwise known as an orange wine. And it's been fortified with spirits for a unique take on Pickpool. This is sold in a smaller format bottle. It's a 500 milliliter bottle to be specific. And of course, there are other pick pools as well from Spirit of Texas, Tornalox, William Chris, Lost Straw, French Connection, and I'm sure I'm missing some others. So let me hear from you. Who makes your favorite pick pool and what do you like about it? Well, that wraps up this episode. If you haven't already, please sign up for my podcast newsletter on the website at thisistexaswine.com. The newsletter is full of my latest winery experiences and some of my favorite wines that I just don't have time to talk about on the podcast. So visit the website and get signed up at thisistexaswine.com. All the show notes for this episode are there too. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover and Jeff Cope for helping me promote the podcast. Visit txwinelover.com to help plan your next winery visit. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all. Cheers.